Good morning, Heyman. Morning. Good morning, Marin. Uh, okay, so a few housekeeping matters. Um, first of all, I'm running in this room a half hour later, it, and it's a trial. The reason I'm doing it is because it was running into other rooms, and people were coming in at the bottom of the hour uh, anyway. And so I thought to myself, why don't we just start it at the bottom of the hour? Because that's probably a less populated time. And so, it's half hour earlier for the East Coast because of our daylight savings time. You know, I can't even figure that out <laughs> because we don't change times. So I have no idea what it is for you and Barbara. Um, Magic I'm, of technology. I'm, Helps us. Yes, the, the magic of technology. Okay. And so here's what I uh, have wanted to do. I have, I've, I've started a house called Karma House. And I want it for what Barbara has always wanted, which is positive discussions <laughs> about things we can do to make things better. And I'd also, you know, like to... Um, like to have a place where people, I've been looking for a place where people who have, um, who are in my community can just hang out safely. Although I will say that outside of one person who tried to get money from me through the back channel, I haven't had much trouble on the app. Certainly not the kind of trouble other people have had. Hi, Irvin. Hi, Marin. Um, hi, hi, Lee. How's Stephen? Hi, Stephen. Okay, so we have had uh, an election. Oh, here. Dr. Francine, I just want to mention that Stefan is my son who just joined. So oh, Stefan. Oh, special hi, Stefan. Special hi. Do you know how much I love your mother? Your mother, I, I, I've got him in the audience, so he can't, he's powerless <laughs> and to tell me. If you want to come up, Stefan, or anyone for that matter, and participate in the discussion, um, the more the merrier, especially in this one, because the United States, as you all know, had its election last week, and while democracy, and I'm going to put this in quotes, held, meaning um, meaning most of the people who denied the election of 2020 did not prevail um, during this election. So for some reason, everybody thinks that means democracy is safe. I don't think so. And I don't think so all over the world. Um, I watched uh, Brazil's election, and I, I actually invited Gouda here, and I thought she was going to come, but she probably has the wrong time zone because she's in Ireland. Um, I'll ping her in once the discussion starts. But what, what I feel is that we have to do something to retrain democracies in why democracy is worth having and keeping. Because, yeah, because younger people 
have been taking it for granted. See, I was, for those of you who don't know me, I was born in 1941, okay? The world was just going into World War II. Um, uh, I uh, lived through, although, I, oh, goody, hi, Guta. I'm so glad you came. Um, so I, I lived through World War II, and I so totally understand um, the value of democracy. And we totally, you know, we totally uh, were wiped out in the Holocaust. And, and when I was a kid, my mother used to say to me, think of this, if I left over food on my plate, think of the starving people in Europe. And so I, I was brought up to believe that democracy was great and wonderful. And yes, I also invited Shireen to be here today, but she has COVID. So she won't be here because Shireen is a wonderful person to have as a friend because she keeps reminding me that democracy might be wonderful, but in American democracy has institutional built-in racism. So it certainly isn't perfect and far from it. So what I feel the job is, should we want to take it on in the next couple of years, is to retrain people in how democracy works and why they should be interested in perpetuating it. And, and I'm interested in two kinds of comments from people in the audience and people on the panel. Because if you notice, I have Canadians on the panel and I have Gouda, who I don't know what to call her. She lives in Ireland. She's from Brazil. She's been everywhere. She, world, world citizen Gouda. So not just American democracy. It's really all democracy. And, and so we have to watch out for democracy all over the world. So the, First thing I want to do is set the stage uh, a little bit about the democracies that everybody comes from. And I'm going to leave out the U.S. because everybody knows what a, oh, thank you, Heyman. Um, all right, there you are, democracy in crisis. Um, everybody knows that American democracy is in crisis. In crisis. But perhaps uh, Barbara and Heyman, one of you could shed some light on what is happening in Canada. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, no, I think. Heyman, uh, do you want to start? Sure. Or I'd like to talk about Denmark. Yeah, no, I think Canada is. Um... Oh, Heyman. Oh, Barbara, you talk about Denmark. And Oops. Then... Okay. okay, there we go. Um, well, it's interesting because democracy has been my entire life from Denmark. And there's today, as we speak about Denmark, there is a right, a small right movement to eradicate certain things like immigration, which scares me, the bejesus out of me. Um, but predominantly right now, we still live in a world of equality where everyone, bar none, educated, non-educated, you know, 
wealthy, poor have equal rights to everything, equal free education, equal free medical care, equal free dental care, equal free daycare. Go and figure that out. Now, do we pay a lot of taxes? But I don't hear a lot of people complaining about that. I really don't. And I haven't in, in you know, however many years I've been connected or lived in Copenhagen, you know, uh, my family's still there. Um, so, you know, there's some, there's some lesson learned, you know, and I know Canada about 20 years ago traveled Scandinavia and learned a lot of things and applied some and didn't apply others. I don't know, Cayman, if you have any line of sight on that, but I really think if we could really stand in the shoes of Scandinavian countries today with all the strife and the war and the fear that they have, I mean, I grew up, I share with this Dr. Francine, I grew up as a child being told that the Russians were coming at any moment. Always, all the time, Russians are coming, Russians are coming, you know, because they, it's such a small country and we were invaded in the Second World War and, uh, you know, we had this immense fear that we were going to just be taken over by Russia. Right? So, um, so the fact that these Canadian countries can still stand with their values, regardless of what's going on around them, but being fully aware and contributing in any way they can to create peace and equality, I think is admirable. I just wanted to add that. And I may be a little biased, but over to you, Haman. <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, I think democracy around the world has um, has uh, is facing a lot of issues. I think it's because of the fact that uh, social media is playing a huge role, and it's sort of like the influencer uh, phenomena in the marketing world or the commerce world. It's happening in uh, in in it's more so. It's magnified more so because in the past, I think. A lot of the politicians had control of the newspapers and everything else, but now they, not many people read newspapers. So the biggest uh, thing now, uh, threat to democracy is basically social media. If you think of the Brazilian election, the same thing. And so for Canada, I mean, Canada has been, if you look at the international scores, we've been a fairly good democracy compared to the U.S., which is considered a flawed democracy still. Um, But the problem I'm seeing is that a lot of those the social media uh, punditry and social media sort of uh, campaigning that we saw in the U.S. style and elsewhere in the world is being amplified here. It's like sort of a like someone's buying off the shelf from consultants and pushing it to different parties. Uh, it's mostly the right wing, but it's still it, I'm not right or left or I mean I'm not pro con, but it's just I'm just saying like the the uh, the way they're marketing is what scares me. Uh, the, what I saw in the U.S. is happening now in Canada, and it's also spreading across the world, and also the influencing. Uh, so you may have heard about the recent news, and uh, you know the whole uh, talk about the Chinese um, sort of lobbying and uh, supporting up to seventy. Uh, apparently, seventy politicians in Canada have been uh, supported by the Chinese government. Uh, the list has not been released. The Canadian um, media is trying to get freedom of information through the prime minister's office, but he hasn't released it yet. Um, what but, is the goal of China in doing that? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's it's everything's favorability, right? We were the last ones to sort of uh, everything from they're talking economy, right? Because Canada's was sort of the last bit of uh, connection for even Huawei, right? Huawei was canceled in the U.S. and by the, the other um, allies. But Canada still held on to it. So those kind of things matter, right? For China, from a commerce standpoint, I, I'm presuming this is what the case. 
and also politicians uh, hold. I mean, China, Canada has a huge Chinese population too, um, and now a lot of initially a lot of Hong Kong Chinese population, uh, Cantonese, and now uh, more so also the Mandarin speaking uh, mainland Chinese are here as well as second as second citizens, like dual citizens. Um, and you know about those police stations, right? So I'm not fully versed in what their roles were, but there were. Wait, what police stations? Oh, so China apparently, like, you know how uh, internationally, um, like, governments have counselor services, right? Uh, so they've got councils around the world they've, to represent and help their citizens. China had an additional thing that came out from this uh, Spanish um, nonprofit research group. I'm not sure what their background is, but what they did was they actually. Um, created a list of all these sort of uh, extra counselor services that were classified as like these Chinese police stations that are operating globally. Um, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but some people say they were coercive um, of their citizens so that they don't make trouble or they would force their citizens to get back to China to face uh, prosecution or something. I'm not sure. Um, but what they were, there were three offices uh, in Canada and three of them were in Toronto. And one was in a convenience store, one was in uh, something else. Uh, so in, in Ireland, they closed down one of their offices. Um, and China has actually said that, no, this is not to, that's not what you say. It's it's more for taking care of like driver's licenses to do more, you know, to help our citizens out. So who knows what the thing is. But that's what it was, and the recent so like mini, mini consulate. Or? Well, that they're not saying it's extra counselor services. They're because the the what, this agency out of Spain said that they were like police stations, right? Police, like the Chinese police, were uh, in having offices around the world. Now, I could send, I put that link up, um, but that's what another thing yeah, came well, up. Well, we have to figure out if they're trying to destabilize democracy. Right. That's or... the, that's the whole. Uh, the brouhaha that's happening with Canada and uh, China at this point, right? The one with the Trudeau uh, apparently being uh, told off, but it's it's more of China, I guess, didn't expect him to... I'm not sure what the discussions were. We don't know, right? But the thing is, this uh, the leak was about this these uh, Chinese influence in politics. We knew about that actually for a long time. Uh, there was a, always talks about it. But uh, this is now getting going hardcore on China right now because China's really uh, – it's funny because I read an Australian article. They said that we thought that China was hard against Australia, but now it seems that China's more hard against uh, uh, Canada. So I think this is sort of a diplomatic uh, – uh, sort of a, uh, basically standing up. That's what people in Canada, we, we feel it should happen. Uh, who knows? It's still developing. Can you hear me okay? This is Barbara. I'm driving, but I just want to add one more thing. I think a lot of people don't understand what democracy is. I, I, I really, really, really mean that. Because uh, I hear it all the time, you know, even at Harvard Kennedy School. Students, international students, national students will say things like, I, um, I don't want to be identified as a leftist, which has nothing to do with democracy. Seriously. So I think either we reinvent the word or we re redefine what democracy oh, is. Oh, wow. So they are confusing democracy with Democrat and Democrat with leftists? Exactly. Exactly. And I swear okay. it is a Okay, so we have to start even further back than I thought. Andrea, I know you have something to say. 
Well, and also if you, I mean, if you're, it depends on which audience you're speaking for, because also the left in America is like nothing compared to the left in, well, the old version of the left in Latin America and other places. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, re a, a reboot about what democracy means and maybe from the traditional, you know, um, beginning of the word and practices to how it's evolved um, and, you know, and whether there's a link to, um, you know, the, the, the protection of human rights uh, and having as a baseline equality for all human beings, regardless of, you know, race, color, religion, creed, sexual orientation. Holy crap. <laughs> I, I, well, here's what I, well, here's why. Because last week in this room, in this club, we made a list of, of things that we could do to get people involved in democracy. And I now realize that and Andrea and I have been working on the list, which, which now, and I would have pinned it up there, but Andrea has put red comments all over it. So we'll update it. Would be, it. Yeah, we'll update it. But here's the thing. We're still working on it, but I now realize that we have to go further back than, you know, and, and further into I was naive. I, you know, I always end up being the naive person. And, and my thought process was, oh, well, we just have to get more young people involved and, you know, do a Rick Sanchez. Sanchez gives the young people more leadership uh, capability um, much sooner. But now you're telling me that people don't know what democracy is. And we have no idea what's being taught in the schools. And we have no, we've got to go even further back. David, did you want to say something before I go back to Andrea? Yeah, I think it's all interrelated. I, I got here late, so I'll apologize if you guys have covered this already. But um, I, I don't want to call you naive, but I, I say there's resources out there for the people that are self motivated to find and find this education timothy snyder a yale uh, a badass on history amazing in, badass in um, he's got um, eight, his 18th lecture of this semester of 50 minutes or longer is on youtube and you can figure out through this lecture that it, it what are what used to be dichotomies are all we find it's all on a spectrum in language and categories. So it's not that you're naive. It's just that I I understand your context, Dr. Francine, but the average person doesn't have 80 years of American history lived to know the history. And, and like, I know who Dan Quayle is. I would tell you somebody 20 years younger than me, there's no way they know who that person is. But... It doesn't matter if you don't care about history. And the problem is very recently all these accelerations have caused people to to become so confused and so replacing their their mental feed with the, the concept starting with Facebook is your new your feed, your the the with the recency effect. 
and we have polluted our minds. And I just want to mention one other scholar that you can YouTube galore, Stephen Kotkin, and he's part of the Hoover Institution, and he's got several commentaries on – he's an expert on Stalin. He's written 2,000 pages of what will eventually be 3,000 pages of the definitive history of Russia, Stalin, and, and the horrible things from the 1930s that happened even before the Holocaust. But more people died under Stalin than Hitler. But why do we in language, we're so rearticulated through history to view the Ru- the Russians got this past because they helped us in World War- end World War II and fascism. What we should call out is Russia is fascist and China is totalitarian. We should stop using communism domestically. We should make it so our politicians clean up their language and stop being hyperbolic. But that doesn't happen. So we have to learn history to stand up to fact check our leaders. And that sucks because it just means we have corrupt leadership and America's not that very different than things that we've been criticizing. And if you learn our history, you find out we've been meddling in a lot of elections and politics for decades as well. So if you learn the history, you can stand up for what democracy is. And it's a concept that we have to renew through our institutions and law and order and, and people not getting away with state secrets in their, their, their Mar-a-Lago resort. But we ha- I think it's a decomposition so that we could recompose. Here's how I did it for uh, five years too long while I drove Uber is I started in the now. I always met people where they were. And you can give get, give them a, a nugget about history if you find out where their family's from or that's what when people are canvassing, I hope that's what the kind of connections they're making with people, but that's hard to do. And it's always one-on-one. So I think that we have to renew our communities. Okay. Always can teach history because each each community has history. And then we walk back from now. I tend not to interrupt, but unfortunately I have to run because I've got a doctor's appointment. I just want to add one more thing. So I've been in front of millions of people in the last 35 years, right, all over the world. And I see how they stereotype Americans, right? And right now, democracy is stereotyped. I'm, I hate to tell you, it is stereotyped. And we need to people, – people are not going to listen or read – kids, my grandchildren, David, are not going to listen to what you're recommending, although I love it all. I love it all, right? And uh, they're not that keen – most of them about the past, but they're super interested about the future. So if we can, and this is, I've studied linguistics for many decades and the power of language is so incredible. So if we could really speak to their future, speak to their listening in a way that they get it in their heart and in their souls, that's what I'm interested in. And I'm talking to Senator Swanee Hunt. I don't know if you know her. She's amazing. She's a democratic senator. Retired since and written several books, and uh, to to really create a movement starting with women and have women and young women, and then have young women invite men into reinventing their future to a, a prism of democracy. And I think that's the to speak to their listening and to their future and to what they care about. I think we need to do a better job of that. And to listen, Barbara, to listen, Francine, sorry, I'll I'll wait my turn, but to listen because many of them are, are engaged and they already have a lot of ideas uh, and they're not being reached appropriately through the right medium. And, and so listening and appreciating that they come from a very different uh, value um, set than 
uh, many of them do, uh, that there's a different value set emerging. Absolutely. And, and uh, Barbara, first of all, that was brilliant. Second of all, everybody, I'm taking notes to add to the document that Andrea and I started. And um, third, David, what I'm also scrolling YouTube. So I'm very busy here while while leaving this room. Um, I'm, I'm scrolling YouTube and Timothy Snyder is teaching the making of modern Ukraine. So what what lecture am I looking for? That it's it's basically the entire. So he goes through that the modern history of Ukraine is a story told from ancient Greece. It fed the basically the plains of what is the is Ukraine. I don't want to say the Ukraine because that's improper. Um, it, it, it's those lands from the Mongols through uh, Kivan Rus. The whole story. This guy speaks Ukrainian. Has been on the ground. So to to really immerse yourself in it, I find my, for my own appetite, it's perfect to have uh, eighteen lectures, like sitting in the college classroom with his his lecture. Um, so that it's eighteen different videos. And that There's, would teach kids what democracy. No, I don't want to teach kids that. That kids can't. Okay, that, that's what's available. Is what I'm talking about. Kids, what? What? I've got twins. They're in third grade. It's it's a full time. You've been in tech news when people talk about what they actually allow their kids to see on the internet and the lack of social media or almost the nothing surveillance. <laughs> it's terrible. I don't want my kids, but. No matter what, they they spend half the time with their mom. So I won't. I don't have control in this hypothetical way that it's talked about on tech news. It. it I live in the micro and the macro, so I can talk about both. That it's a scary landscape. I'm in Texas, so you have a a set of what would be well equipped teachers to teach history that are definitely a, definitely a scary landscape that are fearful to teach and touch on certain subjects, the legislature has basically told, hushed them on. So when we talk about freedom of speech, I don't think any Supreme Court cases are coming up from Texas that, that I, I think it's, this is going to be an off subject, but there, we should have freedom from religion, not, not what's happening out of the theocratic angles of the current composition of our Supreme Court. So that, that back but to so, what we need to do I, is renew our democracy and, and understand okay, that our founders wait, wanted that right. too. Okay, Andrea. I just sorry, want to say David. that across the country, they think there's only nine schools, and I'll try to find the data that actually have civics as a year-long course. Um, and so, increasing uh, learning about civics in public school curriculum uh, and on a uh, on a like year long basis is is also quite critical. So, My brother teaches civics in middle school in New Jersey, so one of them must be in New Jersey. Can I pass to Guta? Yeah, of course. Thank you, thank you, guys. I think the main thing to start with is have people understand the difference what it's an economic model and what it is a political system right because these are two different things a communist is an economic proposal and uh, democracia is a political model 
it it's a two complete things. They can come together, they can be separate, but they've been used in a way or applied in where communism was applied in governments that were not democrat. But I think that's one point to start with. All right. And as Heyman were talking about social media, Barbara, I think one thing, I'm from Brazil and I grew up without being able to speak politics. I've seen people getting arrested. I've known people that's gone missing. I've seen people that are in, in wheelchairs because they tortured this, they suffered. So I'm very suspicious when come to any restrictions to to freedom. I think uh, nobody should accept is something completely unnegotiable. It's your rights and your freedom. And the first thing is to think about how you work with your press and your social media and what happens there. And especially nowadays that we are having this messianic narrative dividing the word in good and bad, you with me or against me, which in fact, it reduces the reality in a very simplistic way because we have different aspects to realities and facts that is being stripped from our knowledge. And this way, it's also stripping us from our power of choice from our freedom are we really do we really have full knowledge to make a conscious choice right no we have a small picture of the reality where it's being played with our fears so we are not even free to choose consciously it's all played in our unconscious so all this, it's very important that, again, thinking about the young people, education and media education and how our minds are played with them, right? And how that influences them, how we are voting, how we are thinking, how we are making choices, making us believe that we are free to do. And most of all, insurance our institutions. So... So a pop Amen. quiz, a pop quiz to everyone then, um, because there was a Harvard Youth poll that was done um, a, just in just before this election, and this is a U.S. population though. So uh, they said that sixty three percent of the respondents were definitely going to vote this year. That's this uh, midterm that happened, and in contrast, only forty seven percent in twenty sixteen. That's of course we all know that the voting age, right? They came to maturation. Now, what do you think of those in the stage, or anyone who wants to join us from the audience as well? What were the top four issues that the U.S. youth uh, were concerned about? Reproductive rights, climate change. But can I ask something, guys? Why we, it has to be about the U.S.? No, no, I'm going to get to the world as well. I've got the world stats, too. <laughs> so I've got that covered, but it's just I just wanted to see what, just because we just finished the uh, midterms in the U.S., and given Francine as well. So I just wanted to know, like, what did you think? Like Francine just now mentioned, uh, what was it? Birth, uh, reproductive rights and? Climate change. Climate change. Okay. And, Anyone else? Uh, personal freedom. Okay. 
Anyone else? Rent. Okay. Okay, so what they said, number one issue, right, was healthcare, not reproductive rights. It was affordable care, right? That was their biggest concern. Uh, so, and th- because I think this this actually goes in with the other three, uh, other two items, which was the, uh, there was also a racial wealth gap, but I think that was probably because it was stimulated by the fact that the uh, the movements had happened before, right? The awareness that came into fruition. The other was student debt. That's why I think the uh, current administration made a point to at least address it. And the other one was career outlook, uh, because a lot of them were feeling um, after even after graduation, they were seeing the recession in the in the midst, right? And I hate to think what this whole FTX and all this debacle with the uh, crypto, which who, I mean, they, they were the majority of people who participated, right? What that plays a role as well in this whole conversation. But I, I'm well, getting, that is yeah. that is fascinating because it's completely different from exactly. adult. Well, see, that's what I was trying to get at. Because <laughs> now, the, let me bring in the international stats. Right, this is this was done by the OECD. Uh, the, the, they have a library and I'll post that link there as well. Uh, let me post the CNBC link for the Harvard poll. Uh, but what they found was, what do you think the average age of OECD politicians is? The average age around the world. 35 and 40. 35 and 40. Okay. Anyone else? Or 35 and 40. That's the average age you're saying, right? Of the OECD countries, the average age of cabinet members. Norway skews younger. Uh, Finland. Okay. And anyone else? 70. Uh, well, no. So the average 40. age is around 52, right? And Japan is the oldest of all cabinet members. They range around 62. Uh, guess who the second and third are? Not the U.S. It is the U.S. US Germany is... and England. No. Uh, well, it's close. Germany is close. France. France. Yeah. No. Uh, Korea is second. And then USA is third. Greece is fourth. Deutschland, uh, of course. Germany is fifth. Uh, Chile is sixth. And it goes on. I'll post this link as well. But the youngest of all of them, I think it's, I think ISL is Israel or ISR is Israel. International coding wise. I don't know. Um, so the youngest is Norway is IS, oh, Iceland, oh, so it could be Iceland. Sorry. That's Iceland. It has to be Iceland. So Iceland, Norway, Estonia, Denmark, Finland, all, most of the Scandinavian countries, um, Austria, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada are in the lowest range, the youngest, uh, cabinet members. So again, wondering how the politics are being affected by this group as well. Well, well, money and politics is going to be entrench interests differently depending on your country and how long you run your right. campaigns for and, and rank choice voting and things that are not in the mix for Americans, even though we talk about it all the time. Yeah. And that's why I'm wondering, like, like, like when the young people, let's say, in, in these countries with the older population see the world, are they actually happy with politics, right? Do they participate as much? I don't think Japanese participate as much as even the Americans, right? They've even given up on ch- children, so. Well, so then my my question, my question is, um, why 
shouldn't we be making a list of things that we can uh, argue for in the future? Yeah, yeah, about necessary for a better democracy. And one of them would be ranked choice voting, open primaries. You know, what do other countries have that we don't have in America that we might want to copy? Well, I think it's helpful if we organize it around. I mean, the way I started this in another document, listening and talking and after we vote over the course of two years was basing it around what are the actual pillars of democracy and then the influencing factors like the economic system. So capitalism Um, and so breaking it down into those buckets and looking at short term versus long term and who we're trying to influence, whether it's voters and what we can do individually. So individual civic responsibility versus, you know, voters versus institutions versus, you know, the education system. So like, what can we do ourselves versus what do we have to, you know, lobby for or ask our companies for, you know, so organizing it a little bit um, along those lines. Uh, But I'll add my thoughts in the document, Dr. Francie. Yeah. And I want to, I want, um, I want to talk about the racial wealth gap too, but unfortunately there is nobody. Uh, Brian, Kaisha, Rogers, would somebody help me and talk about what um, your community thinks about about what's necessary to, to preserve democracy? And also one I thing mean, uh, we could, I think one thing we could say we observed during the last year, right, with the cryptocurrency and everything else. If you notice that the people who were speaking and creating a lot of the rooms uh, were going after the minority populations, especially African American, and even Jack uh, Jack Dorsey was giving out, and that was at a higher value, right? I think a Bitcoin was when it was really high. So, and you don't hear a peep from them anymore. Uh, but I hate to think how many families, uh, fortunes, like, remember, they, when I spoke to many of them, they would say it's a generational wealth thing, right? They want to build generational wealth in a fast way, and they saw it. Exactly. Right? And they, they saw s- it as an opportunity right. to do that. To leapfrog over everything that has happened, and this, is a, this right. could be a miracle. But that that's something that was being pushed on them, too, right? And a lot of the people pushing it were... Uh, I quote unquote, I mean, they were Caucasian and Jack Dorsey was one of them. I've not heard a peep from him since then. Um, so I don't know how much was lost. I mean, if you think of the African countries in the African rooms that actually were talking about Bitcoin and the commerce that it helped with, I hate to think what's happened there. Even El Salvador, like I hate to think what right. the Bitcoin beach people did to that country. But then again, I, I heard the adoption wasn't big. I'm not the, I'm not fluent in this space, but I heard the adoption among the locals wasn't big. So that hopefully that protected them. Let's, the let, government, let, let's let Rogers yeah. speak. Yeah. My thoughts on this is that I think that fundamentally when, when we have these conversations, and I mean we, by everybody, we tend to have a backwards approach to thinking about, uh, you, you know, all of these issues. We start talking about economics, then we back into politics and that we very rarely even get to the ethics that underpin it. I would suggest that a, a, an improvement of, of how to think about this stuff would be to philosophically start with 
you know, all the way back to, uh, you know, you know, to, to the metaphysical, you know, what, what is real, what is tangible, what, what is, what, and then, then epistemology, what, like, like, what do we know? How do we know to be true? Then we can get into ethics. And then once we have that ethical agreement, um, you know, for example, uh, what are the rights of man? This was something that was talked about a lot during the Age of Enlightenment of, you know, what what our rights should be. This is where classical liberalism really came to, to be a thing. And then once you have an agreement on what these rights of man should be uh, and, and you, you ethically can come to some common ground, then your political system should be a little easier to conjure up. And then once you have an ethical underpinning that you agree upon and you have a political system that is in alignment with your ethical agreement, then you, your, your economic system will flow from that. And I think, I think that, you know, we would probably do ourselves a lot of good if we would just get back to, uh, reading what these enlightenment thinkers, uh, you, you know, were talking about everything from, uh, you know, uh, you know, just the core of people being free, markets being free, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, the, you know, that the, the standard is, is protection of individual rights. Some people confuse that with being selfish. Actually, it's not. It's really the protection of the, of the greatest minority. The individual is the greatest minority. And, and so in order to have that type of protection, you do have to have an understanding of why you're doing it. And so the protection of life, liberty, and property is not just something that's contained in a book from hundreds of years ago. It's, it's, it's a really well thought out, uh, concept that in my opinion, there's nobody that's ever, uh, you know, put an exclamation point on it better than, uh, John Stuart Mill when, when he wrote on liberty, uh, you know, and he talks about the harm principle. You should be free to do what you want to do as long as you're not harming other people. And we've abandoned all of that. And now what happens is we talk about, uh, you know, the, the specifics of an economic policy and, and then, and then we, we filter it through, ec, uh, through a political system that's not designed to solve problems, but it's really designed just simply to win elections. And, and so if we actually care about solving problems, we do have to understand uh, you know, well, what can we even agree on what a problem looks like? And, 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 and again, the framework that we use, I think, is broken. And I made my recommendation. I'll yield. Oh, man, Roger. I love that. Thank you for coming up here. The, John Stuart Mill on Liberty. I'm going right back to it. See, I studied all of this in college because I was a politics and government minor and I knew it all. And I thought, oh, well, the United States has adopted all of that, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, that may have been at the time that I was in college, late 50s, early 60s, but, you know, we are in such a different world now, and I, I don't even know if people read John Stuart Mill anymore. But John Stuart Mill on Liberty, what a great suggestion. I'd silence everybody else. <laughs> like, Rick, what have you got to add to this? Uh-oh. 
I think everyone's um, linking. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I think, uh, you know, earlier you were talking about, you know, how I, I think a lot of it is educating. Um, you know, by the time I was, you know, and I, I turned 68 years old today. So I've been. <gasps> oh, Rick. Thank you. Thank Happy you for birthday. spending your. Thank you for spending your birthday with us. Yeah, well, it's always interesting to learn something and to hear from from smart people. So, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, by the time I was in school, there was no civics taught. It, it had turned into social studies. And I was we were never taught about how government really works. And we were never really taught the history of our country in our school. So, you know, I think one of the things I think that we really need to do is to know people don't understand how tax dollars are used, where federal tax dollars are used. Once those federal tax dollars get allocated to the states, how the states have a lot of leeway and how they use those funds and even your county and your city, once they get that money from the states. Um, you know, uh, these are things almost nobody that I talk to understands, um, including some of the people that I know that are elected officials. And it's something that I think is absolutely critical to understanding, you know, what what is done with those, with the funds are is are things um, are things audited do we even have a, a way to measure uh, how those funds are used and whether they're being used effectively and if they are not being used effectively um, what do we do about it you know and instead of having knee-jerk reactions to everything and just saying either more regulations or no regulations, we need to go quality over quantity or lack of quantity. And I think, you know, there's all the people that say big government is a horrible thing. Well, no, not necessarily. Sometimes you need big government for some things. And other things you could do with a much smaller government. It depends what the problem you're solving and what the task is. Just as in anything in life, some things are going to take a lot of people to make them work effectively. Some things will take very few people to work effectively. And, you know, we... We always talk about the black and the white, you know, the, the, the far fringes, and we very rarely talk about the grays. And the vast majority of everything is in the gray area. And we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about the nuance. We don't talk about, okay, this is a good thing, but here are some possible consequences for them. So we don't put on multiple hats where we look at consequences. We look at ways to measure things, ways to audit things, and even funding the audits and the measurements. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of people. It takes a lot of time. 
And I think that if we really concentrated on the task at hand and uh, and start measuring things and designing ways to measure it, I think we'd be a lot better off. And I think I think people would begin to see how complicated many of these issues really are. And once you realize how something is really complicated, I think that that all the knee jerkiness. Um, this happens in families all the time. You know, the knee-jerk reactions slow down and you start to think about the real problem and how to solve it. And I think that's what we need to do. Rick, that's, that is terrific. But I want to go back to I, – I, I want Irvin to speak next, if you don't mind, Stephanie. Um, but I do want to say first, for the record, that – John Stuart Mill, I <laughs> thank you, Roger, where, who I have looked up, um, basically said that the goal of government is protecting the individual freedom of the citizens. And I find that, um, I think it's going to be interesting to try to make that compute with what we now have in the United States. Irvin, hi. Good, ev- uh, good evening, Dr. Francine. I'm talking to you guys from uh, the UK. Coming home on f- Friday, I mean on Saturday, uh, probably the first time that I set foot in the US in about 20 years. So my daughter tells me I've got a lot to be uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's a different world that I'm coming back to. But uh, just to kind of chime in on what's being shared here, you know, I um, when I was in school, elementary school and junior high school and high school, we did uh, have civics. And um, I do think that one of the things that we need to, to really get back to, is, as has been said already, is that definitions of what democracy is. You know, we use this term democracy, but America is not a true democracy. It's a representative democracy. It's a represent. You know, it's a, it's it's, it's a uh, it's a republic, and democracy is one of the things. But that's a representative democracy. And uh, I think as we look into the 21st century, when people hear democracy, as been said before on stage, people uh, dilute that and think that we're talking about socialism. Or we're talking about some type of, uh, it's, it's just, it's not democracy as we have, that I learned. It's not the America that I learned. I grew up in a time when uh, American of European descent were the majority in our country, um, which kind of set the rules for what our country looked like, me being an American of African descent. Uh, I, I refuse to use the terminologies black and white because those are constructs that we use to separate us. Uh, before Thank uh, you. slaves came, before Africans came to, they brought to were brought to the U.S. It was Irish, Italian. Uh, the people that came over didn't consider themselves as white. They were European, and that's the way they they classified themselves. Um, so as I grew up. Uh, one of the things, the hard things for us to really understand is that being a minority in a country that 
uh, has structured their um, existence and their who they are around your, some European laws and uh, some other things. Uh, we tend to, well, my life, I'm going to speak for me, I tend to have flown, gone through many different uh, iterations of what America looks like and what America is, and what democracy means, because I've had to be an American of African descent. I've had to be an American of European descent. <laughs> I had to be an American of, and even though I, that's not part of who I am, I do have 16% of my DNA is European, but uh, it's, it's, it's being able to maneuver in all of those uh, different uh, avenues of what it is to be an American, what it is to be even a citizen of the world. Getting back to Guta, I, I just don't, it's, it's just not, in having traveled, I've seen um, the conflicts on people that believe in a democracy, but they still don't have a meaning of what democracy is. I mean, I, when Heyman was talking about the age, uh, and most of those countries are in Scandinavia uh, um, and, and north of us. Uh, it tends to, and they were younger. You know, I do think that even though I'm, I just turned 70, uh, we tend to be stuck in some paradigm of not really wanting to move ahead. It's easier to cling to the past. And as I look at our young people, and I'm talking about the 20s, 30s, 40s year olds, they have a different understanding about who they are and how they want to maneuver in the world. And it's not stuck to a definition of Republican or Democrat. You know, they, 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 but we want to put them in that. We want them to cling to those party ties because it means something to us. No, it means to them money. It doesn't. Yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything to them. They want, you know, when you look at what's been transpired with the young people that have gone out to, demonstrate to protest it has not been just a collective of one group of people but it has been a collective of a lot of people a lot of young kids that said hey my parents taught me one way but we went to school with the we went to school with urban's daughter or we went to school with urban's cousins or a great uh, grand nieces and nephews and they have a name they're not a color but they have a name and we we tend to associate we date them we marry them. And so, you know, some of the things that they've been taught, they're rebelling against, and they're trying to bring a different understanding on what, how they would like to see. I'm going to speak for, for America moving into the 21st, 22nd century. I don't know if all of us, old people, some of us, uh, will move out of the way and let them have their voice. Uh, when we talk about education in our country, uh, education was first. wait. I, I I have to stop you, Irvin, because I have to close the room out on time because I have oh, an I'm appointment. Sorry for That's okay, and I want Stephanie. Thank I want you. Stephanie to be able to speak first, and maybe Ben, if we can. Stephanie, thank you. I, I'm going to try to be brief. Um, just by way of introduction, um, I'm first generation. My parents left Germany in 1933 and 1937 as um, teenagers, old teenagers. Um, and what I wanted to say was I think 
I don't know if somebody said this. I was kind of in and out of the room, but um, one of the things Roger said uh, probably ties in with this, which is that um, what Roger was talking about also happens in the home. Actually, I think fundamentally happens in the home at the beginning. And I guess my journey into being caring about politics had to do with the fact that my mom um, was very involved in the PTO, civil rights movement. Um, and so at home, it, it was government and getting involved in social issues was part of my upbringing. I don't know that that's true anymore today. It was in the case of my daughter because that's the way I was raised. And I think as a result, my daughter, who's almost 32, she really thinks about uh, policy before she's thinking about politics. And she said the problem is that she doesn't really feel like there's a party that that addresses her overarching concerns. You have parties, like many people have said, that are Democrat and Republican or black and white or right and left. And Me neither, Stephanie, and I'm 81. Well, and I'm, <laughs> I'm 72. So, so, so. And I don't either. I mean, I'm an exact, it's funny. My daughter and I find ourselves in the same place. I mean, the left went left, the right went right. And somehow I got left in the middle. I, so, But I, I've always, you know, tried to vote for people that I thought, you know, represented what I thought was important and good policy as opposed to, I didn't care really what their party was. And I guess, the, you know, the, sh the short way of saying this, because I don't want to take up too much time, is that, um, you know, democracy is bottom up. It's not top down. But what happens is that most kids don't focus really on politics until they come of age to vote. And at that point, they're they're nationally focused and they haven't really had uh, um, they haven't really had a sense of what things go on at the grassroots level. And as a result, I think they also feel disenfranchised or powerless because that's where they could have had they could have made some changes or seen how the, you know, how the sausage is made, as they say, but they didn't. And so what happens is they come into the political world at the federal level when they get to vote in, you know, federal elections and they're, they just, they feel disenfranchised and they, and also they look at people that don't look like them because we have no term limits. We have, you know, you can, you can serve until you're, I guess, until they carry you out feet first and so they don't see people that look like them. They don't see they see parties that don't necessarily represent the overarching policy issues they think are important. Right. Um, and that's the thing we can change and should right. change yep. most quickly. All right. Let, let me let Ben um, bring us home because I have to go um, to a doctor's appointment. <laughs> I love you. I love you all. Thank you so much for <laughs> for spending your time with me every week thinking about problems that interest me. And it seems like some of them interest you as well. And also to give the chat yeah, some... Well, thank you, Do thank you, Dr. Francine. And this is so great. And I am so sorry I, I came in so late. So I'll be checking out the replay. But uh, let me make it quick. I'm going to only... Be, I have like 10 points, but I'm only going to do one. Uh, and the one point I want to make about democracy is... <clears throat> that uh, although uh, most people see me as, uh, as a progressive Democrat, possibly socialist, I'm not. Uh, I've been a businessman all my life. I've been an entrepreneur. I have only worked for somebody else two years out of my whole life. The rest of the time, I've, I've been, had my own business. 
uh, I am a capitalist and a proud capitalist. But I know as a capitalist that uh, the only thing that, that makes capitalism work is democracy. Because democracy is the check and balance against uh, capitalism just going bonkers. Because without democracy, without the, the, the one person, one vote, democ- uh, capitalism will naturally go crazy. It, you know, it, it just the, the, the natural sense of accumulating wealth just goes crazy. And it, it's crazy now, uh, even with the democracy. Without democracy, it'll get like 10 times worse. So I just want to make sure everybody uh, understands that uh, for democracy to work. Too bad uh, that we're not really a democracy anymore. Well, no, no, I, I, I think we are. And I, I would push back on that. And, and I know that my friend Irvin said that. And, and I know a lot of people are saying that lately, that we're, we're not really a democracy. I, I push back on that. The, the idea of democracy versus republic is, 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 not a, is not really proper anyway. Because uh, the republic... You, you have the People's Republic of China. You have the, the, the Democratic Republic of Korea. The, the Republic doesn't mean anything. It's a word that, that counters against monarchy. It has nothing to do with democracy. We have a democracy. It started out as a very poor democracy where women and, and people of color couldn't vote. Uh, but it's gotten better over the years. It's gotten fine-tuned. until it, And we need to get it even better. We still have a long way to go. But I think absolutely we are a democracy, and I think it's important that we make our democracy better. Because the better the democracy is, the the better we are as a country. And and the fact is is that when you have somebody who's a poor person who lives in the inner city, and then you have a rich person that lives in Beverly Hills, in democracy they have an equal status. That's what makes democracy work. Because I have as much power in democracy as Bill Gates. And that's the way it's supposed to work. Again, it's not perfect, but that's the idea. We need to make sure that everybody can vote, and we need to encourage everybody to vote. And, and I'll just leave, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. So, Francie, um, oops. So Francine is saying that she's in some sort of a technology matrix. But with that, uh, I also want to point out some chats in the chats. Thank you very much all for participating in those chats. And Marcus uh, Holzhauer uh, also mentioned that one of the biggest problems is the perception of many is that all politicians are corrupt. And I think the amount of money is concerning. uh, And that's something that to go forward and also to Ben's point uh, that one vote matters, but also question of in the future discussions could be had about Citizens United and how uh, does corporation have one vote as well? Um, so with that, I think Francine had to run off. So we usually close the room within the hour. So thank you all again for joining us from the clubhouse side as well as a call-in side. And uh, please join us again next week. This is an ongoing conversation for all the global um, world. Take care all. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining.